Are we so afraid of failure that we fail to even try? Why is it that becoming our own worst enemy is not only an option, but it's what most people default to? It's these things that have just started to pry into my thoughts more and more as I speak with all of my past guests who boldly accept the difficulties to reach their dreams. Today is no different and is instead your new motivation to try again. Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough Podcast. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie. My guest today is Terry Tucker. Terry started out playing college basketball at the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina, despite having already had three knee surgeries in high school. He then followed a business degree to a corporate career, then a stint in hospital administration, switched everything up to become a cop, and kept pushing to become a hostage negotiator. That's not even his whole path. It's just a few highlights. And it's certainly not all glory all the time, as he's also been battling a rare cancer for the last 10 years. If there is anyone who can speak to overcoming any obstacle in order to follow your dreams, it's Terry. So join us for a little while and Soak in the hard-earned advice of a man who's chose the hard path on every occasion so he could grow. Most of these stories we share today are also genuinely funny and made for a great time. I hope you enjoy them. I am very sorry about my congested sinuses when we were recording this. But anyway, let's get over those hurdles. Welcome to the show, Terry Tucker. Well, thanks, Colton. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Yeah, I'm so glad you could make it on the show. Why don't you tell the audience about yourself? Sure. So uh, I won't go back to birth, but I'll go pretty close. Uh, actually, I was, I was born and raised on the south side of Chicago. I'm the oldest of three boys. You can't tell this from looking at me or from my voice, but I'm six foot eight inches tall and I played college basketball at the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina, despite having three knee surgeries in high school. Uh, when I graduated from college, I moved home to find a job. I'm really going to date myself now, but this was long before the internet was available to help people find employment. And I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. So I was all set to make my mark on the world with my newly obtained business administration degree. And I look back now and realize how little I knew about business just because I had a degree. Fortunately, I was able to find that first job in the corporate headquarters of Wendy's International, the hamburger chain, in their marketing department. Unfortunately, I lived with my parents for the next three and a half years as I helped my mother care for my father and my grandmother, who were both dying of different forms of cancer. Professionally, as I said, started out at Wendy's, then I moved to hospital administration, and then I made a major pivot in my life and became a police officer. And part of what I did uh, as a cop was I was an undercover narcotics investigator. I was a SWAT team hostage negotiator. Uh, and after my law enforcement career, I started a school security consulting business, coached girls high school basketball, became an author in 2020, but for the last 10 years have been battling a rare form of cancer. And then finally, my wife and I have been married for almost 30 years. We have one child, a daughter, who's a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy and is an officer in the new branch of the military, the Space Force. 
Very cool. Yeah, talk about someone who has struggled against odds in all directions for a long time. Yeah, I have. But in a lot of ways, I've been lucky. You know, I, I have been fortunate to have those different careers. I always felt my my passion or my purpose was to be in law enforcement. My grandfather was a Chicago police officer from 1924 to 1954. So he was in Chicago during Prohibition when alcohol was outlawed in the United States, you know, during the Great Depression in the late 20s and early 30s. And when the gangs, you know, Al Capone and those guys were shooting up the town and he was actually shot in the line of duty with his own gun. It was not a serious injury. He was shot in the ankle. But I mean, let's face it, trauma medicine in 1933 was a whole lot different than trauma medicine today. And, you know, my father always remembered the stories my grandmother told of that knock on the door of, you know, Mrs. Tucker, grab your son, come with us. Your husband's been shot. And so when I expressed an interest in going into law enforcement, my dad was absolutely not. You're going to go to college. You're going to major in business. You're going to get out, get a great job, get married, have 2.4 kids and live happily ever after. But that's what my father wanted for me. I never felt that was what my passion was. And so I had a choice when I graduated from college. I could be like, sorry, dad, I'm going to go blaze my own trail. Or out of love and respect for you, I will do what you want me to do and go into business. So I, my first two jobs were in business. And I sort of joke. I did what every good, good son did. I waited till my father passed away. And then I followed my own dreams. So, you know, I, I, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there listening to us who, you know, have a family member that is influential in their life and is trying to steer them towards something that they believe is in their best interest. But I've come to believe that you've, you've really got to follow your heart. You've got to follow your passion and live your life. Yeah. I think that's honestly very true. Like you have to live for yourself because as much as the people around you love you and they care about you and they want to see you succeed, you can't live their dreams and you can't live by their ideals because I mean, either you're going to feel just kind of hollow inside or, you know, you're just going to want more for yourself. You're right. And and I, I couldn't agree with you more because I, I think I felt both of those. I felt hollow and, and I and I was like, I knew there was something more. I knew there was something I was supposed to do. Now, you know, I look back on it now and realize that being, you know, working for Wendy's and then being in hospital administration gave me some life experience. And I was able to apply that life experience when I became a police officer. I was able to talk to more different types of people and things like that, people from different backgrounds, people from different ethnicities and things like that, that, that helped me be a better police officer that I'm not sure I would have been as good had I not had that experience. So I don't think there's a, a I don't think things are necessarily bad you know, so much in life is all about timing. You know, it's it's not so much meeting the right person or doing the right thing at the. It, it's some, it's more about meeting the right person or doing the right thing at the right time. And you know, sometimes timing isn't right for us, and and we need to wait. And we don't like to wait. You know, we we we're kind of a instant gratification society. I want it. And I want it now. Well, you don't you don't get it now all the time and so for some people that's frustrating and causes anxiety and depression and all kinds of other things yeah i think it's something that has been kind of lost on us in some way over just an amount of time is persistence like you have got to if it's something you really want 
and something that like drives you forward and really makes you feel fulfilled, like you have to just keep doing it. Even if it's the hardest thing you've ever done, you have to just keep going. You're right. And, and, and so few people do that. You know, and I think part of that is is that one word that we hear, we're starting to hear a lot more now is grit. You know, how much grit do you have within you? I remember there's a quote from Jerry Rice, who's a NFL Hall of Famer, played for the San Francisco 49ers, who used to say, today I will do what others won't so that tomorrow I can do what others can't. You know, and, and that sort of goes to what you were saying. You know, are are you willing to stick with it? Are you willing to do those things that aren't pretty, that aren't sexy, that maybe aren't making you a lot of money right now. But if you stay with it down the road, you know, and, and that's, you know, I think of my, my daughter, fortunately or unfortunately, got my height. And I think of the, the number of hours in the gym, you know, that she, she used to do putting up thousands and thousands of shots every day over the summer, which eventually led to her going to the Air Force Academy to play basketball. And, you know, you think of those people who are sitting in the corner office. Well, they didn't get there just because, you know, of, of who they are. They got there because they were work, willing to work overtime and, and nights and weekends and do the things that other people wanted to do. You know, the, the surgeon that takes care of us, that person that put in thousands and thousands of hours, you know, for very little pay, under extreme conditions to get to the point where they could perform that surgery that would save our lives. So, you know, I think people just see the end product and think, oh, that's that's what I want to be. They don't see the ugliness. They don't see the work that goes into getting to that point in your life. Well, yeah, we are almost so glamour focused at this point where everything is like show off your best self. Like the amount of times I've heard people say like, oh, your best life, your best self, like only put the best out there. It's very misleading because I think a lot of us look at it and we're like, man, is this what everyone is doing all the time? Are we all succeeding at the highest level always? Because that makes you super afraid to fail. Like, and yeah. you have to, you just like cannot do anything a hundred percent successfully. That would be outrageous. Yeah, I, I think the road to success is paved with failure. And, you know, if you don't fail, you're never going to be successful. And, and I sort of agree with you. You know, you always kind of hear people from time to time, you well, in a past life, I was so-and-so, you know, and that so-and-so is always somebody famous. How come nobody ever says in a past life, I was Joe Schmo? You know, I never did anything, you know, with my life. And there, there's a there's a guy named Ed Milet who talks about the four types of people in the world. And he said, you know, the first type is the unmotivated. And he said, that's the vast majority of people in, in life. And he said, then you've got the motivated people. And, and that's kind of a, if you do this, I will get that, you know, and, and it's sort of a low brow kind of thing. And then you have inspirational people, you know, who inspire, you know, their spirit, it, it inspires people to do things. And then you have the aspirational people. Th those are people who other people want to be like. And, and that's kind of what I strive for in my life. I'm not anywhere close to being aspirational, but that's what I'd like to do. And if you think about it, you know, if you sort of take the world, if the vast majority of people are unmotivated, and I think that's true. I mean, I think I've seen a lot of people in my life 
who live what I would call a casual life and their dreams, their goals, their ambitions become a casualty of kind of that unplanned living. And unfortunately or fortunately, between the number of years I've been a police officer and, and I've been on this cancer journey, I've seen a lot of people die. And I'm going to make a huge generalization here, but I think the people that die, what you and I would call you know, peaceful deaths, seem to be the people that did something with their life, found their purpose in life and lived it. Whereas the people who go kicking and screaming, you know, who want another month or another year seem to be, again, huge generalization, seem to be the people who really didn't do anything with their life. They never followed their dreams. They never, you know, tried something that was scary and new with the thought that, well, I might fail, but I also might learn something. So I know that's a huge generalization, but I'm I'm much older than you are, and unfortunately, I've seen a lot of people die. And I just think that, you know, we're all going to die, but we're not certainly all going to live. Yes, that is definitely true. And it feels like you have to have a purpose, because if you are part of that unmotivated group that has never taken steps to make a better life, to pursue your dreams, to do any of those things, when you get you know, a terminal diagnosis or a, you know, potentially terminal diagnosis, even those are a lot of the people that just like break down and they don't have the will to fight it. And they just, you know, they kind of not to sound harsh, but they kind of just moan about the situation. They're like, Oh, you know, poor me and this horrible situation. And that's true. You know, absolutely. I would hope no one in the world ever had to go through those things, but that's, you know, it's just not the case. And the people that you see pull through those or, you know, have these absurdly long lives after being given such a short time period, like, I don't know if I've ever talked about her on the show, but my grandmother was diagnosed with a very rare breast cancer. And they said, you have six months. And six years later, she was still, you know, just like, telling doctors to shove it <laughs> yeah. because she was like, no, I got stuff to do. I don't have time to like sit here and do all this with you guys. I got, I got things I got to work on. And so like, you have to have that, that purpose in something that just keeps you moving forward. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I, I think back, as I mentioned, my father was dying when I graduated from college and this was back in the 1980s and he had end stage breast cancer which for a man at that time, the doctors didn't really know how to treat. I mean, they knew how to treat women with breast cancer, but for a man, it was very rare. And they pretty much told him to go home and die. They tried some things, you know, they were throwing stuff against the wall and see what would stick. But he lived another three and a half years. And I always believed he did because he had a purpose. Like you said, he he was in real estate. He loved be, He loved doing that. He worked up till two weeks before he died. And I remember when he when he did, you know, I was watching that. And so I kind of tucked that in the back of my mind. It's like, you know, well, when it's when it's my turn, I need to have that purpose. I can't just lay in bed and think about how horrible or dire my circumstances are. I, I need to have a purpose in life. I need to be able to do something. And so I, you know, and, and I have done that and I'm, I'm doing it right now with you. I, I'm still being I have tumors in my lungs because of my cancer. Um, and, and I'm still being treated for those tumors, but 
going on podcasts, talking to people like you, telling my story in the hope that it helps somebody who's listening to us, that gives me that purpose. And my wife always, you know, I, I'm treated for a week and then I have two weeks off and then I'm treated for a week. So it's a three-week cycle. And my wife was always like, you need to rest. You need to bring your blood counts back up. You need to do it. I'm like, hey, I'll get plenty of rest when I'm dead. You know, it's like this energizes me. This gives me my purpose that if I didn't have, I'm sure I would have been dead a long time ago. So I think you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. I mean, if you don't have something like that keeps you moving, right? Like if you just stay still, it's kind of a metaphor from like running from the Grim Reaper. You know, if you're like, yeah, if I don't have anything moving, I just kind of stand here. It's pretty easy to catch me. But if I never stop running, they never catch me. Exactly. And and that's the other thing, especially with your, the story you told about your grandmother. You know, doctors don't know your resolve. They don't know that, you know, you're granddaughter is going to graduate from college next year or your you know your son is getting married next spring or whatever and you're going to be there for that and those are the kind of things that i think pe keep people going instead of saying well yeah it's my time doctor said six months i'm just going to turn my life over to the doctor and i've always felt that i wanted my life to be fashioned by the decisions that i made not by the ones that somebody else made for me or the ones that I didn't make, but I've seen so many people, you know, cause I've, I've been at this cancer thing for a long time. So many people just turn their life over to somebody with a bunch of initials after their name, who yes, is very smart and understands things, but what they don't understand is you and they don't understand your resolve and what you want to do. And you're not done doing it yet. And I think when you get to that point in time when, you know what, yeah, I've done what I want to do. It's time to go now death is not nearly as scary as opposed to those people that never really do anything with their life. Yeah. I think it's, it's like a measure on your fulfillment, right? Like if you, if you live life without regrets, um, as we were talking a little about Jody Wellman before this interview, that's her whole thing. It's just like, if I can get you to a point in life where you don't, you know, regret not doing things or you regret, you know, not making these big decisions or making these big trips, you'll just be happier at the end. You're like, yeah, you know what? I nailed it. And maybe it's coming up a little short for me. Maybe I don't have as much time as I thought I did, but I killed it. Like in the amount of time I had, I just like went for it the entire time and I got it and I feel better about it. Yeah. Life was meant to be lived. And, and, and that's, I think the thing that people don't understand. It's not meant to just sort of sit back and hoard your possessions and hoard your time. I, I, you know, we were talking about, as you said, the, the Jody Wellman interview, you know, talking about what she named her company, 4,000 Mondays, because that's pretty much all we have in our lives. And if you, you know, if you do things with your family, my, my daughter, my wife and I, you know, I mentioned have one daughter, she's grown, she's married. And how many times do I get to see her a year? maybe twice if if I'm lucky. And, you know, you get to a point where if you if you sit back and you say, well, you know, at my age, I probably have maybe 10 more visits with her before I'm, I'm going to die. Maybe a lot less because of my cancer situation. And when you think about that, there's more of an urgency to kind of get off your butt and, and do something with your life. And I, I always, I've always believed that we're all put here 
for a reason, that we're all put here for a purpose in life. And we all have unique gifts and talents that, you know, and, and always people always say, well, how do I find my purpose? So I, I think you search for it with an open heart. And I think a lot of people feel, and, and certainly this would be great if it was the case, that their job or their occupation is their purpose or has to be their purpose. It doesn't. I mean, your job could be something over here and that's what you do to pay the bills, but your purpose is over here to, to write or to paint or to be a podcast host or to be a volunteer or an activist or whatever it is. And I always tell, especially young people, if there's something in your heart, something in your soul that you believe you're supposed to do, but it scares you, go ahead and do it. Because at the end of your life, the things you're going to regret are not going to be the things you did. They're going to be the things you didn't do. And by then it's going to be too late to go back and do them. Yeah. I mean, it's very much like if you imagined yourself at the end of your life, you're never going to say like, wow, I took so few risks. Good for me. You're going to be like, oh, no, you remember all those things I tried and failed horribly and enjoyed along the way and then found what I really enjoy? Like, I'd have never got there if I hadn't screwed all those other things up. You're right. And, and you're absolutely right. But but fear, you know, that that that's scary part. And, and I wrote a book in 2020 and one of the chapters in the book I entitled. And, and I think this is true. And it's even true for me because and I'm not really proud of it, but I know I've done it significantly over my life. And, and the, the title of the chapter is most people think with their fears and their insecurities instead of using their minds. You know, I think back on my life where it's like, oh, I, I, I want to do this, right? Feel the, the desire, the drive to do this. Oh, wait a minute. You know, am I smart enough? Do I have the knowledge to be successful? What if I fail? What will people say? That's thinking with our fears and our insecurities Instead of using our minds, Nelson Mandela, the former president of South Africa, used to say, I never lose. I either learn or I win. And if you keep that attitude, it's okay to fail. It's like we were talking about before. You know, the road to success is paved with failure. It's okay to fail as long as you learn something from it. And who cares what other people think? That's that's one thing that's really bothered me. It's bothered me on my cancer journey. It's bothered me as you know, as I've grown up, where people compare themselves. I mean, I'll, I'll go on podcasts with, well, you know, I have this kind of cancer and my experiences, so I know what you're going through. You have no idea what I'm going through. And I have no idea what you're going through. We're all on an individual journey when it comes to our life, our career, you know, even our illness. So, you know, when people say to me, I know what you're experiencing, like, you have no idea what I've been through. Yes, you have cancer, but you have a di totally different form of cancer. So people that compare themselves to other people and then kind of step back, and be like, oh, you know, kind of a failure because I don't have as much money as they do, or I don't have the job that they do, or I don't live in the house that they do. You're not supposed to live their life. You're supposed to live your own life and you get depressed and you get anxious and you get scared when you start comparing yourself to other people. You're on your own journey. You've got to figure out that journey for yourself and then live. Yeah. While you were talking, it reminds me of this thing I heard and I don't even remember where I heard it, but it was about failing forward. And they're like, look, if you're going to run and every step gets you closer to your dream, 
the least you could do when you trip is to fall forward at whatever you're doing because it gets you a little closer to your goal rather than like slipping and falling backwards and stopping like just run into it yeah i i i think that came from and i i know for sure that it mary Kay cosmetics the you know the people drive around you see them in the pink cars and things like that that they have a saying about failing forward you know if you make a mistake at least make a mistake failing forward where you learn something and you can apply that mistake. I think the story I heard about when, when Mary Kay, I think her last name is Ash started Mary Kay cosmetics. She had this big, you know, her philosophy was I can sell cosmetics, not at the counter at the, at the department store, but I can sell them doing kind of a Tupperware party in, in homes. And she said, you know, my, the first time I did it, she said, I, I made a dollar and 50 cents. And she said, I left the party. I went around the corner, you know, drove around the corner and I just cried for an hour until I realized that I had never asked anybody for the sale. I'd never asked anybody to buy anything. And, and she's like, what an idiot I was, you know, for that. But I learned from that. OK, so the next one I did, I asked for the sale and I made more money on it. And obviously, I think her philosophy took off. And, you know, it's, it's certainly a, another way or a different way to buy cosmetics and things like that, that nobody had thought of before. So did you learn something? Yeah, I was an abject failure at my very first in-home uh, meeting to try to get women to buy cosmetics because I didn't ask for the sale. Uh, well, I learned something. Now I'm going to ask for the sale. Oh, okay. That was, that was what I needed to be successful. But yeah, they talk about failing forward. So it, it, it's very important as long as you, as long as you learn something, you're never a failure. Well, and I think a lot of it is like having perspective on your own journey and not trying to measure up to all these other people. Because if I looked at this podcast as a business in its first year, I didn't break four digits as far as income. However, I was in the mid threes. And that's when I was starting this show. I was like, man, who's going to pay me to do any of this? Like, who's going to pay me at all to speak into a microphone, you know, in a sound dampened room in my house? And then I got somebody who gave me like $20. And it was like, that meant the world to me because somebody was paying for me to say something. And then I think about that and where I ended. And I'm like, man, I didn't close out my first year at zero. Like, mm -hmm. I, I made money in my first year. And that's crazy because... Most people don't make anything doing this. Right. So, and right. that's and the same thing. Like I've laughed a couple of times in my head at the thought where you're like, yeah, you know, I'm six, eight and I was doing undercover work and such. I'm like, man, a six, eight undercover officer is a wild thought <laughs> because who is more recognizable? But that's, you know, and, and, and you're absolutely right. And, and people usually pick up on that. And, but what I always tell them is, you know, the illicit drug trade, that industry, and it is, it's an industry. I don't care, you know, it, it may be an illegal industry, but it's still an industry. What motivates that industry is greed. And so if you have money, I don't care who you are, what you look like, you know, what you'll find somebody to sell you drugs. And so, you know, yeah, I did. I, I mean, I'm, I'll never forget. I was a, this happened in Cincinnati, Ohio, and where I was a policeman and I was working in the drug unit and I was working the night shift. And one of the day shift people called me and said, hey, I got these kids coming down from 
Dayton, Ohio, that want to sell mushrooms, psilocybin, and they want to use the money and party in, in Cincinnati that night. Will you buy from them? I'm like, okay, what, what's, you know, what do we, we need a cover? Do we need some? It's like, yeah, what do you want to be? And I, I, I posed as a professor of metallurgy at the University of Cincinnati. I don't know anything about metal other than, you know, you put it out in the rain and it rusts. I mean, that's about my extent of, of knowing, you know, anything about that. But I, I you know, I, I was in a kind of casual clothes and I had a briefcase in the back seat and all that kind of stuff and met these kids in a park. And, you know, they jumped in the car, gave me the drugs. I looked at them, gave them the money and, you know, they jumped out, got in their car and then got swarmed by the rest of the people in my unit and a couple of marked cars. And instead of partying in Cincinnati that night, they were guests of the Hamilton County Justice Center. So, uh, you know, it, it was just, yeah, it, it was a, it was a fun time. But in a lot of ways, it was it was very serious. It was in a lot of cases very dangerous work. But it, I worked with great people and had a blast doing it. I think it's very much an I mean a billion dollar industry in every every single drug is a billion dollar industry. And it's definitely dangerous. And that's why, like, the thought that people are willing to overlook any amount of weird abnormality or potential, like, red flags just to make a quick dollar is also, like, wow, I guess that speaks to, to you know, some people's drive to do certain things. Yeah, I mean, you 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 have to, you know, I always wore my vest, my uh, bullet-resistant vest underneath my clothes. And I, I remember I had a I had a hooker, I had a prostitute get in the car, was going to sell me drugs. And and she started to feel, you know, my torso and that. And, you know, she got all because she felt the best. And I had to think on my feet. I was like, I'm like, don't do that. I said, I've got I've got broken ribs and I've got to wear this, you know, to protect my ribs. And and she bought that, you know, she was oh, oh OK, you know. Yeah, it's like here's the money. Go get me the drugs, and she came back, and and she got arrested. But you know, I mean, that was the and we were we were a street level a group. You know, we bought on the street level, but a lot of times that street level took us to somebody higher and things like that. And we did get the opportunity to work with the DEA and and things like that. And it was just it was easier uh, for us to make better cases with the feds. Because like, I'll give you an example. So for me to charge you, if I arrested you and you, you had a gun, number one, I had to physically possess the gun. And two, the gun had to work. So I had to test fire it to make sure it worked. If it didn't work, I couldn't charge you with you know carrying a gun. In the feds, I mean, if they could be up on somebody on a wiretap and they're listening in and you mention the word gun, well, that's a federal gun charge. They don't have to ever see the gun. They don't have to ever recover the gun. But if you say gun, you know, and if they're up on a wiretap on you for, you know, two, three, six months, you say the word gun 25 times, that's 25 federal gun charges. You know, that's why it's good to work with the feds because it's like, I don't even have to have the gun and I, I can charge you with it. So it, it's a lot more serious when you get to the federal level, but obviously they're looking at, the big picture, they're looking at the people that are bringing in, you know, kilos of drugs to cities and things like that. Whereas, like I said, we're pretty much trying to get the street level dealer and things like that. It really reminds me when you're like, oh, don't touch that. It's for my broken ribs. Like people will just kind of take any excuse to avoid the unpleasant possibilities where they're like, it's a far more likely he's wearing a 
you know, a vest because he's a cop than it is that he has some vest that like holds his ribs together. (laughs) But if you're like, oh man, just please don't be a cop. Please don't be a cop. And you hear literally any excuse. You're like, glad you're not a cop. Yeah. Well, they would say, you know, are you a cop? Because if you are, you have to tell me. Yeah. Like, no, we don't. <laughs> like, I don't. I don't know where you got your law degree, but it's like, I don't have to tell you. No, I'm not a policeman. <laughs> Man, undercover work would be so hard if you had to announce to anyone that asks that you're a cop. Well, I, I, I'll tell you a funny story. One night, my my partner and I were were driving around. It was a it was a Friday night. We, it had been a very busy week. We were tired. And we were we had our police shirts on. I mean, it said, you know, Cincinnati Police Department street corner unit. And this, we're stopped at a at a stoplight in downtown. And this guy comes up to us and he's like, what do you need? And we looked at each other and we looked at him and, and we, like, we were like, check your shirt. You, you, can you read? Do you see the shirt? Do you see the badge on the shirt? Yeah. Yeah. What, what do you need? And we looked at each other. All right, we got to arrest this guy because he's just too stupid, you know, to be among us. If the fact that, you know, you can see that we're the police and you're still asking us, you know, how much do you need? What do you need? You know, it's like, OK, sorry, you you, you got it. So we jumped out and, and grabbed him and he had some cocaine in his pocket and that. So it's just like sometimes you don't have to be good. Sometimes people are just so stupid that, you, you know, you, it kind of falls into your lap. So it's kind of a funny story. Yeah, that's really good. Like, it's almost as if he just walked up to a marked car yeah. and just was like, hey, guys, how would you like to see my drugs? <laughs> exactly. Well, that's kind of what we thought. Like, you can't possibly be serious. You yeah, know, like, this is like a joke. Yeah, this, you, you know, you know who we are. You you know, you're, you're just playing with us. He didn't know who we were. And even after we told him who we were, he still was willing to try to sell us drugs. And it was just like, you, you got to be kidding me. You know, it's like, no. You're like, hey, maybe, just maybe, this isn't your uh, forte. This shouldn't be your field of expertise. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, you're not very good at this. (laughs) Or you're not going to be good at it very long. Let's put it that way. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we can fail forward in some, uh, some circumstances, but I feel like you only get a couple of these fails and then you're done just for good. Yeah. Well, and that's just it. You know, I mean, now I've arrested you for, you know, one felony possession and two, you know, felony, you know, uh, distribution. You're dealing, you know, I mean, we're going to go to court. You're going to lose. And it's like for the rest of your life. Now you're a a two time felon. I mean, is that really what you want for your life? Is that, you know, and and it, it the problem is, is it's there's so much money that's exchanged, you know, in the drug trade. And you can make a lot of money very quickly. Yeah. Um, I remember one night we we got a tip on a car and we ended up pulling it over. And the guy the guy had made a false compartment behind his his vents where he was keeping his drugs. We had a drug dog, so the drug was able to dog was able to sniff it out. But he also had eighty thousand dollars in cash in his car. And we asked him, "It's like, are are you nuts?" Because now we seize that money as proceeds, you know, for drugs. And, you know, it ends up going to to, to be distributed amongst all the law enforcement agencies in the in the area. And, and he was like, well, wh- what choice do I have? Everybody in my neighborhood knows I'm a drug dealer. So if I leave the money at home, people will just break in when I'm gone and steal it. 
if, at least at least if I have it with me, I know it's safe until you guys get me. So it's you know it's kind of a no win situation in a lot of ways because I mean eventually we're going to get you. It may not be this week. It may not be even this month. It may be a couple months from now and stuff like that. But you know I, I was I liked the hunt. I liked the cases to work the cases to develop you know probable cause. A lot of times I would just sit on a house, you know, and watch and then eventually develop probable cause to pull somebody, you know, somebody pulls up, goes in for 30 seconds, comes back out and gets in their car and doesn't use a turn signal to leave the curb. Well, I'm going to have a uniform car pull them over and I'm going to try to talk my way into their car. And a lot of times I did that. And now it's like, okay, you, you've got drugs. Now here's the deal. You either work for me and go back in there on a controlled buy so that I can do a search warrant and I can hit that house with SWAT and stop that drug dealer and arrest them, or you're going to have a felony conviction on your record. It's your choice. What do you want to do? So most of the time they work for us. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's very like self-preservation at some point has to kick in where you're just like, well, I got to do the thing that protects me and, uh, right. you know, whatever that means. It was, it was, I mean, there were some, I mean, there were just some weird things. I mean, there was a guy that was living with his girlfriend. His girlfriend had no record. She uh, worked nights, uh, hard worker, you know, had nothing. And he, when she would go to work, he would sell drugs out of her apartment. She had no idea that that was going on, you know, and it was, I mean, it was a nice apartment in a nice area and, you know, I was sitting in the parking lot and watch people come in and out and buy drugs. And, you know, they jumped over the banister and knocked on the sliding glass door and, you know, quick exchange and boom, they're gone. And she had no idea. I, I mean, we, we hit it with a search warrant one night. She came home, you know, early morning and like, what's going on? You, I mean, you kicked in my door and you've done, yeah, your boyfriend's selling drugs. Yeah. And the problem was, is that he was on an electronic monitoring unit. So we had a, a, an ankle monitor. And in order to do that, you had to be, you had to be somewhere where you had a landline phone because it, you know, it, it worked off of that and she had a landline phone. So that's where he was staying while he was on, he was waiting trial on another charge. So it, it's just the things people do and the things that put other people that they supposedly love or care about in very difficult situations are it's, it's ridiculous. And like I said, it's all about making money. Yeah. I mean, the links that some people will go to completely disregarding others around them who might be even supporting them. It, it's really crazy. It is totally. So, you know, what else have you kind of seen or experienced or, you know, just learned along the way that really like, helps with that that resiliency with people getting through some of these hard times. I like to talk about what I call my four truths and and these are these are things that I've learned over my 10 year uh, journey with cancer and and let me back up I guess a little bit and tell you sort of about my journey. 2012 I was a girls high school basketball coach when I had a callus break open on the bottom of my foot right below my third toe and initially I didn't think much of it because as a coach you're obviously on your feet a lot but after a few weeks of it not healing I went to see a podiatrist a foot doctor friend of mine and he took an x-ray and he said Terry I think you have a cyst in there and I can cut it out 
And he did. And he showed it to her. It was just a little gelatin sack with some white fat in it. No dark spots, no blood, nothing that gave either one of us concern. But fortunately or unfortunately, he sent it off to pathology. And then two weeks later, I received a call from him. And he, the, like I said, he was a friend of mine. The more difficulty he was having explaining to me what was going on, the more frightened I was becoming until finally he just laid it out for me. He said, Terry, I've been a doctor for 25 years. I have never seen this form of cancer. You have a very rare form of melanoma. And most of us think of melanoma as too much exposure to the sun. But this melanoma appears on the bottom of the feet or the palms of the hands. And because it was so rare, he recommended I go to MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston and be treated. And so I did. I had the the tumor excised on the bottom of my foot. I had all the lymph nodes in my groin removed. And then when I healed, because at that point, melanoma was pretty much a death sentence. They didn't have anything, didn't have any really drugs that they could use. So my doctor put me on a drug called interferon just to try to keep the disease from coming back. But the side effects of the interferon were that it gave me severe flu-like symptoms for two to three days every week after each injection. And I took those weekly injections for almost five years. So imagine having the flu every week for five years. And that was not a cure. That was, as my oncologist said, we're trying to kick the can down the road and buy you more time. So 2017, the interferon became so toxic to my body that I ended up in the intensive care unit with a fever of 108 degrees, which is usually not compatible with being alive. Somehow I survived that. Um, but as soon as I stopped the interferon, because obviously I could not continue it with the toxicity level that it was producing in my body, the cancer came back in the exact same spot on my foot where it presented that necessitated the amputation of my left foot in 2018, two more surgeries on my shin in 2019 because of the cancer, and then 2020, an undiagnosed tumor in my ankle area grew large enough that it fractured my tibia, my shin bone, and my only recourse right in the middle of the pandemic was to have my left leg amputated above the knee, and I also found out I had tumors in my lungs, which... I indicated earlier, I'm still being treated for. So I know that sounds like a really dark and ugly journey, and it certainly has been. But I'll tell you, I don't think you really know yourself until you've been tested by some form of adversity. And secondly, I think cancer has made me a better individual. And it's made me a better person because I've come to understand what I call my four truths and I'll give those to you. There's just one sentence. I have them here on a posted note that I see uh, multiple times during the day. And so they constantly get reinforced in my brain. The first one is control your mind or your mind is going to control you. The second one is embrace the pain and the difficulty that we all experience in life and use that pain and difficulty to make you a stronger and more resilient individual. The third one is more of a legacy truth. And it's this, what you leave behind is what you weave in the hearts of other people. And the fourth one is, as long as you don't quit, you can never be defeated. So I look at those kind of as a, as a foundation that I use to try to build a quality life off of. Yeah. Are they things you try and do like all in tandem or do you try and like follow them through from, you know, start to finish on each thing that you do in your life. 
I, I think I do them kind of in tandem, you know, the, the embrace the pain and the difficulty, you know, people always ask, well, how do you, how do you do that? And what I try to tell them is I, is I do, and, and I do, I do, I try to do this every day, do one thing that makes you nervous, that scares you, that makes you uncomfortable, that's potentially embarrassing. It doesn't have to be a big thing, but if you do those small things every day, eventually when the big things in life hit, and they hit all of us, you know, we lose our job, we're living out of our car, someone close to us dies, whatever it ends up being, if you, if you do those small things every day, you'll be so much more resilient to handle the big things when, when they come our way. And so I, I try to do those things every day. You know, some I do a little bit more of every day. Some I do a little less. But for the most part, those are the things that that I use to make decisions. You know, I, I when I had my leg amputated, my doctor wanted to put me on chemotherapy. And I looked at him and I was like, is it going to save my life? And he's like, yeah, probably not. I said, well, I don't, you know, if the outcome is going to be the same, I don't think I want to go through all that pain and ugliness if, if I'm still going to die. But I'll go home and talk to my family. <laughs> and this is really, it, it, it happened exactly this way. It's just my wife and daughter. My daughter was home from school. And so I go home and I start telling them the story. My daughter's like, all right, we need a family meeting. I'm like, family meeting? There's three of us. It's not like we got a board here or something <laughs> like that. you know. So, so we end up sitting around the kitchen table talking about how each of us feel about me having chemotherapy. And then my daughter's like, all right, let's take a vote. How many people want dad to have chemotherapy? And my daughter and my, my wife raised their hand. I'm like, wait a minute. Am I being outvoted for something that I don't want to do? But I remember back in the police academy, our defensive tactics instructor used to have us bring a photograph of the people we love the most to class. And as we were learning different techniques to defend ourselves, we were to look at that photograph because he reasoned you will fight harder for the people you love than you will fight for yourself. So I ended up taking chemotherapy, not because I wanted to, but because my wife and daughter wanted me to do it. And in hindsight, it was a perfect bridge that got me to the point where now I'm on this clinical trial drug. So, you know, life is, is kind of funny sometimes, you know, you, you sort of end up doing things that you don't want to do. <laughs> Yeah, you're like, did I get outvoted on my own body? Exactly. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I love the uh, family meeting because I just imagine this like blowing the conch cell moment. And you're like, there's three of us. Right. <laughs> who, are you, who are you summoning to this meeting? <laughs> exactly. It's like, can we just stand here and talk? No, we got to sit around the kitchen table. You know, it's like, are we getting snacks here or something? What's going on? You know. <laughs> She's like, no, I'm assembling the numbers to defeat you in a vote. <laughs> exactly. That was like a hostile takeover or something like that. You know? <laughs> uh, uh, no, I think those are all really good key points because each one of them, like, you know, stresses something in like a call to action a bit where you're like, listen, you can either control your, your mind or it can control you, right? Like you direct your thoughts. If you let them just like get really invasive and really tell you how bad things are and how, how terrible things are going to be like, yeah, you could succumb to that. But if you just kind of reject those thoughts, just in general, we're like, no, I don't believe any of that. You will look for better outcomes. 
Yeah, I mean, we all become what we think. And and I I, I don't think people realize the, the stuff that's in your head manifests itself in your body. It manifests itself with your friends. It manifests itself, you know, in your work experience and school and all that kind of thing. I mean, I think back just to college, you know, people would go out and party the night before a test and come into the test. And, and, and what would they say? Oh, man, really hung over. I'm, I'm going to blow this test. Nobody ever came in and said, Oh man, I'm really hung over. I'm going to do great on this test. Nobody ever goes to the positive. And when I was in high school uh, and I went to high school in Chicago and played basketball there, one of my, one of the guys I played with went to Indiana, played for Bobby Knight, who was a, a really great basketball coach kind of in the day. And I, I remember seeing him in the summer when we would both come back to Chicago. And I said, you know, what's Knight like? And he would tell me and he said, Knight's got this, this saying, this philosophy. And it, he said, it's a very simple philosophy, but if you think about it, it's incredibly important. And, and the philosophy was this, or the quote was this, mental is to physical as four is to one. So here was this great coach teaching, you know, elite athletes playing at the University of Indiana to be great basketball players. But what he was really saying is that your mind or your mindset is four times more important than anything your physical body is going to do. I had a nurse recently ask me what it was like to have my, my foot amputated and my leg amputated. And I told her, I said, it's been incredibly difficult. I, I'm still learning how to walk again. And it's been two years with the prosthetic leg. But what I told her was, is cancer can take all my physical faculties, but cancer can't touch my mind. It can't touch my heart. And it can't touch my soul. And, and that's who I am. That's who you are, Colton. That's who everybody, you know, in our in your audience is. And we spend so much time on the exterior, on worrying about how we look and is my hair right? Am I wearing the right clothes? And not nearly as much time working on who we really are, our heart, our mind, and our soul. So I always encourage people, spend a little bit more time working on who you are and a little less time working on all the external things that really don't matter in our lives at all. Yeah. As you were saying, some of those, like, you know, I, my physical faculties, whatever, like you can't take away who I am just by like removing a leg. I remembered this person that had just sent me a message um, and I'm going to butcher their name because I can't read whatever language it's in, but looks like Indicha. And he had said like, Hey, you know, I'm living in this refugee settlement. I'm literally reading this off my phone. <laughs> Terry can see me, but the audience can't. Um, <laughs> and I literally like thought of it in the moment. I was like, oh man, I just got this message. He said, you know, I'm in Mauritania. I'm living in a refugee settlement. I can't like, I can't get out. Everything is too expensive. I'm really struggling. I have this spinal cord condition that has me immobilized. But, you know, listening to your show lets me like hear all these other people talk about all the better things going on out there. And it still lets me learn and it still lets me experience things. And I was like, Oh boy, man, like that is, uh, that is really heavy to drop. I have no idea how to respond to this because I'm like, good for you. Like, I'm so sorry you're going through these things. Truly. I can't even begin to fathom because I live a way more blessed, easy life than that but i was like also like i am so glad that this guy 
amongst all of his numerous issues is just like, no, I'm going to like, I'm going to listen to your show. I'm going to listen to these other shows. I'm going to learn stuff. I'm going to keep growing. And maybe one day things won't be so terrible and I can use it. You're right. And, 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 and that's a, that's a great point that you bring up. I, I'm going to tell you another nurse story because that seems to be who I hang out with. I, I, I had a nurse who, when I first met her, she was already a nurse, but she was in the unit. She was in training in the unit where I get my infusions. And, and she's young. She's probably 25 years old. And a couple months later, she was taking care of me by herself. And she said, you know, Terry, I've got this story I want to tell you, but I'm a little uncomfortable telling you. And I mean, I, I didn't really know how to respond to that. I mean, it's like, well... Sounds like it might be a great story. I hope, you know, you get up the courage to tell me. And, you know, she was in and out doing things that she needed to do in her capacity as a nurse. And then she finally said, all right, here's the story. She said, when I first met you, I was going to get out of nursing. I had had a very good friend of mine that had died. I was in a very dark place. I talked to my mom and dad. I was going to go to work for Amazon. And then I met you. And I see all the ugliness that you go through, you know, every third week when you come here. i I read your story, how you've lost your legs and you lost your leg and lost your foot. And, and, you know, you have these tumors in your lungs. And she said, I knew I was where I was supposed to be. Now, if she would have never told me that story, kind of like the individual on your phone from Mauritania, you, you would have had no idea that your show, I had no idea that my life experience had had such a positive impact on another person that I, you know, I mean, at least I knew this person. The individual that sent you that message, you've never met. And, you know, to think about our lives, who's out there that would give anything they'd got to walk in our shoes for just one day? You know, they look at you and they, wow, man, I'm learning so much from Colton and his show. Or, you know, I see what Terry goes through and it inspires me. And you you think there's there's a basketball coach in, at UCLA when I was growing up called John, named John Wooden. And he had a saying that when a careful person I want to be, a little person follows me. I dare not go astray for fear they may go the same way. So I think about that a lot in my life. It's like, who's looking at me? Who am I consciously or unconsciously being a role model for just by the way I live my life? And, and as I'm living my life, is that something I'm proud of that somebody else would want to emulate? Well, and it's these things that like, you know, hearing that story has to drive you forward. Cause you're like, all right, what I'm doing is helping at least one person. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm sure the silent voices in the crowd, like, you know, are still there, but you're like, I'm hearing someone literally say that what I'm doing right now is positively impacting their life. And I have to continue doing that because now not in a bad way, but there's a pressure on me to keep going. Yeah. Like somebody, you know, you're trying to run up a hill and now people are behind you, like pushing your back and they're like, don't worry, you're not going to fall. Like just keep running. Yeah, exactly. And and we all have those people, or at least we all should have those people. And, you know, that's another thing I talk about, you know, who, who's in your inner circle? I mean, who do you surround yourself with? You know, if you surround yourself with people that are that are smart, that are caring, that are supportive, that are loving, you're going to be smarter, more supported, more loved, as opposed to the people, you know, are do you have people in your life that are, it's nothing about 
but drama with them. It's not, it's nothing more than, hey, it's all about me. Well, those people are not supporting you. They're not looking out for your best interest. They're not probably most importantly willing to sacrifice the relationship with you to tell you the truth about what's going on. You know, I mean, but what do we do? You know, it's if you, Colton, Colton, if you're one of my best friends and you're like, Terry, you're, you're really kind of messing up here. You're, you're not doing good. What do I do? It's like, oh, get away from me, Colton. You know, you're, you're not part of the inner circle. No, I, I need people like Colton. I need people around me that are willing to sacrifice the relationship with, relationship with me to tell me the truth, that love me enough and care about me enough that they're willing to say, mm, Terry, no, not good. You shouldn't be doing this or you're messing up, whatever. Those are the people we need to surround ourselves with, not the people with all the drama and they all, hey, it's all about me kind of thing. We don't grow that way. Yeah. People strong enough to to voice an unpopular opinion. Yeah. I think that's great. And I know I've kept you here for a while. I'd love to give some time for you to plug, you know, the, your book and where people can find you and the things that you do. Sure. Uh, so my book is called Sustainable Excellence, The Ten Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. Uh, it's a book that can be pretty much bought anywhere. You get a book online, Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com, Apple iBooks. Uh, every day I put up a thought for the day on my blog called Motivational Check. With that thought for the day comes a question about maybe how you could apply that thought into your life. Uh, on Mondays, I put up the Monday morning motivational message, which a lot of times is a story or a video that I find online that I think has merit. I've got recommendations for videos to watch, other books to read. My social media links are there. You can even leave me a message. So everything there is motivationalcheck.com. Awesome. And if people pick up the book, as I always remind people, leave a good review on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever you get it, because it helps other people find these things. The more they get reviewed, the more they get talked about, the higher up they get boosted. And that helps more people grow and see them. Absolutely. All right. Thank you again so much, Terry, for being on the show. Well, thanks for having me, Colton. I appreciate it. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Just Dumb Enough podcast. Please take a brief moment to rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, or Audible. Tell all those people you know about this show that you've been listening to. I'm always looking for new topics, guest ideas, and questions from the audience. To reach out to me, email dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com or send a message to any of the numerous show pages on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or wherever else you're looking for content. That's all for now. I'll see you Monday for an episode that teaches us how to speak. Trust me, we're doing it all wrong. Bye-bye.